Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. I sat spellbound on the settee in front of my television. There was a fascinating documentary from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association being narrated by Billy's son, Franklin Graham, head of the Samaritan's Purse Organization. The documentary featured several individuals who had been confronted by the claims of the Lord Jesus in the name of the greatest crisis that they had ever experienced in their lives. One was a famous running back for an NFL team. One was a female singer and musician and others. One, and he was the most fascinating of all, called himself an illusionist. In other words, he was a magician. He was, he admitted, a fraudster, in a manner of speaking. He was successful and fulfilled in his chosen career. Then he received a death sentence from his doctor. He had been diagnosed with one of the worst forms of cancer imaginable. I don't recall the strange name he gave it now, but his vivid description of it and its effects on his body will remain with me. I cannot imagine receiving such devastating news. His body apparently was unable to make new useful blood cells. His blood cells had been changed by his medical condition, the cancer. The marrow in his bones had changed them, and the marrow was now making this new kind of deformed cell. His immunity to further disease was diminishing in his effectiveness to fight off any kind of disease. He had leukemia. His greatest concern was for his family, his wife and a daughter and a son. He would not see them grow up, he thought. He was going to die unless the doctors were able to try the one and only possible treatment they said at the time to a person in his condition. They had to find a person whose genetics, whose DNA characteristics were so close to his that with a complete blood transfusion, the doctors hoped he would begin to regenerate good blood cells again. He had a slim chance of surviving, they said. He found out that the National Leukemia Donor Bank had about 7,000 participants, and they searched each one of those 7,000 trying to find a close enough match. His life depended on it. Not perfect, apparently, but close. Otherwise, he was going to die. The stark reality of his situation caused him to consider his options. He had to know whether there was a God, and if God intervened in human affairs. He needed a miracle. Interspersed between segments that describe the awful decisions facing each one of these people were clips of Billy Graham delivering parts of his characteristic message at crusades over the years, clips with words and scripture passages that spoke directly to the questions being asked by these unfortunate people. 
As the documentary drew to a close, we found out that of the 7,000 possible donors in that bank, they found only one with characteristics that were sufficiently close to the man's DNA that they could chance a complete replacement of his blood, hoping that his marrow would kick in, take the hint, and begin to manufacture the correct form of blood cells so that he could live again. The amazing thing is that single donor turned out to be a woman. He now has her blood circulating in his body, complete with female chromosomes and all of the stuff that goes into his circulatory system, female. But that didn't matter. The transfusion worked. His body now produces healthy blood cells, and be it female or not, he lives. The message that he delivered to those of us watching, supported by Mr. Graham's scriptural references, is that he lives because another person was willing to give her blood to bring him life. And in a way, she now lives within him, bringing life to him. In a similar way, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Christ shed his own blood on the cross that we might live. He now lives within us, and the life that we now live, we live because of him. I was amazed at the wonderful analogy that he gave regarding God's love and Christ's sacrificial death to bring salvation to all who will call on the name of the Lord. Death, my.
And now with his message for today, here's our pastor, Alan Lee. Good morning, and greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are continuing with our series of messages, of which this is the eighth, on the topic, The Human Difference. We are seeking to demonstrate the truth from the Word of God that the Christian or theistic worldview provides a better basis and philosophy for living than other competing worldviews because of the awesome fact that we, human beings, are made in the image of God, what we call the Imago Dei. Because of the current interest in same-sex marriage, we previously gave three messages on that issue. We concluded by pointing out that scriptures show that human sexuality, as originally designed by God, inherently concerns the polarity of the sexes that reflect the Imago Dei when united as husband and wife, and that this is still God's design and intention today, regardless of what science is purported to have shown or has actually contributed to our way of life. My friends, no scientific progress can change what God has permanently established as the bedrock of humanity made in His image. And thus, biblically and theologically speaking, Because of the fact that mankind, as created as male and female, was created in the image of God, same-sex marriage is a distortion of that image because it is contrary to what God is like in his essential nature. In our last message, using the same proposition that there is a human difference in God's creation because of the imago Dei in respect to man, the fact that man is made in the image of God, I began showing from the Word of God that is also the reason why capital punishment is not allowed in Scripture, but in fact is essentially demanded if the Godness of God is to be reflected in our behavior as a nation that seeks to be known by righteousness rather than unrighteousness. And so, as a result, according to a theistic or Christian worldview, and from a Judeo-Christian heritage perspective, which the Bahamas has historically shared, it would be a travesty of the highest social, philosophical, and religious perspective to abolish it from our judicial system in order to supposedly bring us into conformity with other so-called progressive nations of the world, which do not share the same heritage as we do in the Bahamas. And instead of being a true progressive step, it would in fact be a devolution of our moral and spiritual heritage as Bahamians. We pointed out that Genesis 9-6 is the crucial text regarding the basis for capital punishment. This text states, and I quote, Whoever shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God... He made man, end of quote. And so the principle is clear. God instituted capital punishment because humans are created in his image, the Amago Dei, the image of God. The purpose of capital punishment, therefore, is first and foremost the preservation of the godness of God as reflected in man being made in his image. In other words, To unlawfully take a human life without the authorization of God who created it is to subject oneself, that is the killer, to the taking of his or her own life 
by the agency so authorized by God to do so, which, as also validated by Genesis 9 as well as Romans 13, is the state or government as opposed to individuals per se. Biblically speaking, the institution of human government and capital punishment were done at the same time, and they were instituted by God himself. And so I want to emphasize again, the principle of capital punishment is not rooted in the Old Testament Mosaic law, but rather in the creation order. It is therefore as valid and binding upon human beings today as it was when it was first instituted by God. It is a much broader biblical principle that carries over into the New Testament because of this fact. In other words, it does not end with the Old Testament economy. Now, Jesus is often presented as being diametrically opposed to the concept of capital punishment, mainly due, I believe, to their own preconceived or mistaken idea of the nature and character of Jesus Christ. They sincerely believe that Jesus not only would not, but could not condone, much less teach such a concept as capital punishment. But is this really so? Let's take a careful look at what the scriptures actually teach concerning Jesus' position on capital punishment. Now, some claim that Jesus changed or abolished the old law and directly opposed the death penalty when he saved a prostitute from being stoned by saying, Let he among you who is without sin cast the first stone. That's John 8, 7. And also when he said, Judge not that you be not judged, Matthew 7, 1. But Jesus himself told us that he did not come to abolish or change the law, but rather to fulfill the law. Listen to his words as found in Matthew 7, verses 17 through 19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by no means will pass from the law until it is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches man so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. End of quote. Now, with regards to the woman taken in adultery, as I explained in my last message, Jesus was not in a position to legally do away with capital punishment. That was the sole prerogative of the Roman government at that time. And also, he was not dealing with murder, he was dealing with adultery. And so if he did have the authority, he could only remove the sentence for that activity and not for murder. Finally, when seen in his historical setting, from the Jewish perspective, what Jesus was actually saying was that, because stoning could only be carried out if the accuser were present and willing to first make the charge, or in the words of the text, to condemn the accused person, and then second, be there to cast the first stone, the sentence could not be legally carried out. Now, the accusers failed to meet these legal requirements. Therefore, Jesus could say to the woman, Since there is no one here who would legally condemn you, neither can I so you are free to go. It is clear then that some have taken these biblical quotations out of context 
and change their meaning to suit their own personal views. Those who oppose capital punishment use what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged, to say that the death penalty contradicts Christian values since we have to judge others to sentence someone to death. But again, let's look at the context of what Jesus was saying. Let me read from verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not, says Jesus, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in context, it is clear that Jesus was speaking to hypocrites and emphasizing the need to judge fairly. So what he is saying actually is, if I steal and I see someone else stealing, I cannot judge them for stealing. I would be a hypocrite. First, I myself must stop stealing before I could judge the other person. That is called judging fairly and not judging as a hypocrite. And so Jesus is not prohibiting judging others. He is giving the guidelines for doing it in the proper way. That is also what Jesus did when he stopped the stoning of the prostitute from the angry mob, discouraging mob rule and vigilantism. Jesus left justice and retribution to the civil authorities, which were named God ministers of his wrath in Romans 13 and verse 4. My friends, I say again, we must stick to the text in interpreting the word of God. To do otherwise is to open oneself to a host of hypocritical contradictions. Jesus clearly regarded capital punishment as a just penalty for murder when he said to one of his disciples after he tried to kill a soldier who had come to arrest Jesus, he said to him, All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus also recognized the death penalty for people who cursed their parents during that time in their history. This is what he says in Matthew 15, 4. For God said, he's quoting his father now, Honor your father and mother. He who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. My friends, those are the words of Jesus Christ. He does not criticize or overturn capital punishment. Recall also when Jesus faced Pontius Pilate. Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? Which may be interpreted, by the way, or paraphrased. Don't you know that I have power to impose capital punishment upon you by killing you on a cross? That's what he's actually saying. Notice carefully now how Jesus replied to that statement. Quote, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. John 19, 10 and 11. And so Jesus actually explains to Pilate that his use of the death penalty is a divinely entrusted responsibility that is to be justly implemented. Jesus did not say, you cannot send me to the cross, you cannot cause me to face capital punishment because I have come to do away with that. He did not say that. 
Jesus actually instead validates the Old Testament principle that capital punishment is a divinely given responsibility and obligation of government, and it must be carried out in a just manner for the right reason. Recall also, while hanging on the cross, one of the criminals crucified next to Jesus said, We receive the due rewards of our deed. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was actually saying, we are facing capital punishment because it is the right thing to do because of what we have done. But now listen to what Jesus said. I say to you, assuredly, today you will be with me in paradise. Think for a moment now. Jesus' pardon did not extend to eliminating the consequences of this criminal crime that was done by this man. He acknowledged that it was the proper punishment. Now, let me give you Jesus' last words on capital punishment, and they are found in the book of Revelation. This is a message that Jesus himself personally received from his father, and then he communicated to the apostle John. Listen to Revelation 1.1 that validates this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his bond servants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bond servant John. That's verse 1. Now, go down to chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Remember now, it is Jesus who is speaking through John. This is what he says, quote, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Friends, that was Jesus Christ talking, and he's making that statement right at the close of Revelation to us. And so it is clear, from Genesis to Revelation, nowhere does the Bible repudiate capital punishment for murder. Nowhere does Jesus Christ in any way say that it is wrong or improper. In fact, he endorses it. And it's all because of the fact that man is made in the image of God. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, 
the Lord is coming soon. They're forever more to stay. The great commander's promise, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every listening moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be in a moment Jesus Christ could come again